One thing everybody longs for, even non-Christians, is peace on earth. Everybody loves, everybody wishes for world peace. Everyone wants to see all peoples, all nations of the world at peace with each other. But nonetheless, everybody knows that this task is, at least by human strength, impossible. And so peace on earth has kind of become a cliché. A wild, unachievable fantasy. The world is simply too complicated. The problems we face are too great. We can never actually find peace on earth. But we Christians, we actually have a very simple solution to all of the problems that we face as human beings. We know that peace on earth is not only something that can be accomplished, but by faith we believe it inevitably will be. And so what is the answer to all of the world's problems? How is it that we can be at true and abiding peace with our fellow man? Well, we're actually going to get that answer today. If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. As we continue in our sermon series through Ephesians, as we now are focusing in, as we began last week, on Paul's application of the great doctrine of salvation to the circumstances of the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. When you're there, I would invite you to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. For he has made himself our peace, for forgive me, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Up to this point throughout Ephesians, uh, the Father has primarily been the focus of Paul's theology. Now we've we talked about, especially in Ephesians chapter three, verse or one, verses three through fourteen, that certainly all the members of the Trinity are at the front of Paul's mind. And Paul goes out of his way to include the members in the Trinity as he explains our salvation to us. But no doubt, throughout the first two chapters, the Father is the focal point of our salvation. The Father is the one that Paul is focused on. Just to give some examples, you don't have to turn to any of this, but Paul says it is the Father who predestined us. It is the Father who works all things after the counsel of his will. It is the Father that raised Christ from the dead. It is the Father that made us alive when we were dead. It was the Father that created us and fashioned us as his workmanship for good works, etc., etc. And then Paul just emphasized that all that the Father's doing is only being done in Christ. So again, the members of the Trinity have been there, but it's, the emphasis has been on, as verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But now, as Paul begins to turn and apply this salvation that we've covered, Christ now sort of becomes the focal point of his theology. We are really focusing now on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet again, that is not to say that the other members of the Trinity are not 
in view at all. We see that, for example, in verse 16 of our passage, where Paul tells us that Christ, that through Christ we might be, that, uh, forgive me, Christ might reconcile us both to God in one body. So we still have this idea of Christ's purpose is to reconcile us to God. And then look at verse 18. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So again, uh, the Trinity is still totally in view, but there is now a specific focus on the person and the work of Christ. And a brief overview of this text would just be one of the many, many reasons why we as Christians preach to the world unashamedly an exclusive religion. We as Christians believe in an exclusive religion. We are not universalists. We are not inclusivists. We do not believe that there are many ways that someone can become right to God, with God. We do not believe that there are a lot of different religious paths a person can take to find peace with God. But we are exclusivists. There is only one Savior. That is what Paul is trying to emphasize. It is only Christ and Christ alone who reconciles us to the Father. This is why Christ says that famous passage in the book of John, excuse me, in the book of John, for I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There is only one Savior. And because there's only one Savior, this is why we preach only one gospel. There is only one Savior, and therefore there is only one gospel. And that is really the focus of Paul's point in this passage. He's trying to teach us that there is one Savior and one gospel for all people. There's not a gospel for the Jews and a gospel for the Gentiles. A salvation plan for the Gentiles and a Messiah for the Jews. We are all saved the same way, and it is all in and through the work and person of Jesus Christ. There is only one Savior. There is only one way to the Father. There is only one gospel. And it is this one exclusive gospel of our only Savior which holds the key to peace with men. Jesus in his gospel in this text is the key to uniting all of mankind in such a way that true abiding peace can be found. If I were to summarize this passage with one main idea, I would describe it this way. Peace with men and peace with God is found in Jesus Christ. Peace with men and peace with God is found in Jesus Christ. In other words, as Paul is focusing on peace and unification in this text, he actually talks about peace in two directions which very conveniently makes a cross, right? But we have peace in two different directions. We, in Christ, we have a horizontal peace, which is a peace with men. But we also have a vertical peace, a peace with God. We can be unified with our fellow man. We can have peace with our fellow man. And we can be unified with our one God. We can have peace with our one God. And so we're going to break down those two directions, if you will. The horizontal peace and the vertical piece and see what Paul has to say about it. So we're going to start with what is probably the emphasis of the text, which is the horizontal piece. In other words, peace with men. Because remember, the Jew-Gentile distinction covers the whole world. Gentiles is everyone who's not Jewish. So when Paul speaks of the unification of Jew and Gentile, he's talking about the whole world having the potential to be in complete, abiding peace and unity with one another in Christ. So let's talk about peace with men. 
This can be found in verses 14 and 15. Let's read just verse 14, the beginning together. He begins this section by saying, speaking of Christ Jesus, for he himself is our peace. Stop there. Paul reminds the Ephesians that Christ is the peace between Jews and Gentiles, but he does so in a remarkable way. I wanted us to cut that sentence short because that's a remarkable way for Paul to phrase it. Notice, Paul is not describing Jesus as a peacemaker. Although Jesus is technically that. He does technically do that. But Paul is not describing Jesus as like a peacemaker who is bringing peace into our, into our life. Right? Jesus is not um, just sort of changing our circumstances and making peace happen. Paul describes Jesus as, in his person, the embodiment of peace. Jesus doesn't come and bring peace. He doesn't give peace to us. He is our peace. That's what he says. But Christ, for he himself, is our peace. In other words, he hasn't just merely having a social influence over our lives. But what Paul is emphasizing is that peace is only found with a deep, abiding union with our mediator. It is the flesh, body, and soul of the mediation of Christ that brings peace. He is peace. Peace isn't something that he throws into our lives. He is peace. And when we are joined to him, we are joined to peace. We find peace in Christ. And so how exactly does this work? Let's continue to break down. How exactly is Christ the peace of the world? How is he our peace between Jew and Gentile? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Who has made us both one? Let's stop there. Christ has brought the Jews and the Gentiles together in union. And this means that the Jews and the Gentiles have not merely been brought into a mutual relationship. Jew and Gentile have not metaphorically come to the table and shaken hands. We're not two separate parties with a, a nice relationship between each other. Jesus has taken it even beyond that. He has blended us into one new thing. It's not two parties who are at peace. He has made us one. He has united both Jew and Gentile together. Consider this analogy. Uh, it's, it's a common circumstance for you know, parents, they, they get to know each other and they become friends and then their kids become friends. And every time they get together, their kids play together. And then eventually what happens is some new parents move into town and they become friends with the parents. And so they want their kids to join the friend group, but the new kid's kind of weird. Not really weird. They just, you know, sometimes as children, it's hard for us to want to do new things. We've got our friend group and we're happy with it. And so the parents will be hanging out and most of the kids will be hanging out. But then there's the new kid who's off in the corner and he's shy and he's uncomfortable and he's bored. And so what do the parents do? The parents force a mutual relationship. They say, hey, you guys need to play with little Timmy. You need to let little Timmy play, right? And so now the kids are sort of reluctantly, oh, okay, fine, come along, Timmy. You can play first base, fine. You stay over there, just don't touch the ball, right? So it's like they've, they've been forced into a kind of mutual relationship, but there's, there's really not unity there, right? And so I want to ask the question, aren't, is, is that analogy... Would that be a right way of understanding salvation? 
Because that's what we talked about last week, right? Last week we talked about how by the blood of Christ we have been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. The Gentiles have been allowed into the friend group. God has come along as father and told the Jews, no, you need to play with the Gentiles. Are the Jews reluctant in this? Fine. Come along after thoughts. This is how we do things. Don't get in the way. I don't want to be a part of a group if I'm still hated. I don't want to be a part of a group if we've just come to some religious compromise. You see, last week we learned that the Gentiles have been brought in to Israel. But Paul is adding more information here. He's, he's continuing to paint our picture of this. There's more going on. Last week we learned something important. Gentiles have been brought into the people of God. But what we see is more is going on here. Namely, the people of God are being transformed. It's not just, just business as usual, only the Gentiles are part of the club now. Jew and Gentile have not merely just come together in covenant. They have come together in deep spiritual union. So much to the point that they are no longer to be considered separated at all. There's no such thing as Jew-Gentile anymore. We have become one. And if you think I'm maybe making too much of that phrase, Paul gets very explicit at the end of verse 15 with what I'm saying. Look at verse 15 about halfway through. After speaking of abolishing the law of commandments, why did, what did Christ accomplish? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. You see, again, I don't mean to be redundant. This is not just a mutual relationship of Jew and Gentile. Jew-Gentile has been abolished. Those two categories of men have been erased and they have been recreated into one single new man. By the way, this theory, this not theory, this biblical truth, this gospel truth of salvation in the new covenant being a union of Jew and Gentile to replace the Jew-Gentile distinction, this is the very foundation of our identity as individuals. Right? This is why we can teach our children truthfully. We can look them in the face, and it's not just to help them get through life. It's not just to make them feel better. We can truthfully look our children in the face and tell them that their identity, their value, their worth is not found in how attractive they are. It's not found in how good their grades are or how athletic they are or how expensive their clothes are. Because the most important thing about any person is whether they are in Christ or not. When we are in Jesus, Jew-Gentile doesn't matter anymore. Rich-poor doesn't matter anymore. Tall-short doesn't matter anymore. You're a new man. You're a Christian. That's what matters. Jesus is the most important thing about you. And that's good news. The most important thing about you is not your job, is not your family, not your children, not your hobbies. It's Christ. I love that you see this, for example, for those of you who are on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. I don't know why, but I am on Twitter. And Twitter allows you to have a bio. And you can really see people's priorities when they're only given a very short amount of characters to describe themselves. And uh, it's uncanny among Christians, they will almost always reveal the order of their priority. It'll say something like, Christian, husband, father, fireman. 
And that's the, that's the proper order. What's, what's more important than your vocation? Your vocation matters. Your, God loves vocations. He loves work. He put us on earth to work. Your job, whether you're a homemaker at home, whether you're a police officer, a fireman, a teacher, in the medical profession, whatever you do, God loves it. It's good to, to take pride in your work. But it's not more important than your children. And it's not more important than your spouse. But there is something more important than your children. It's Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian first. Everything else is secondary. In Christ, all distinctions are gone. And the only thing that matters is we are one in Him. By the way, I I want you to see this. I'm sure you believe me. If, If you grew up in the church, this is probably old hat for you. But I want us to see how important this is. Keep your marker here, but turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Turn over just one book. Philippians chapter 3. Paul Paul is really going to get explicit with this. Let's read verses 2 through 11 together. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Paul had a lot of good earthly things going for him. Paul, Paul, Paul makes crystal clear, whatever you think you have to brag about in this room, Paul is more bragging rights. Right, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired one-upmanship. You think you're great, Paul's better. You think you're special, Paul's more special. Paul's got all of these things he could take value in, that he could boast about, that he could brag about. And what does he say about them? Rubbish. Worthless. What has made them worthless? Because I found something far more important. Being found in Christ and having a righteousness from Him and not a righteousness from the law. That's more important than being a Hebrew of Hebrews, of being of the special, one of the special tribes. It's more important than your job. It's more important than your family. The most important thing about you is whether you have found the righteousness of Christ. And do you see how in that there is some unity? You see now how this, the picture is starting to form out? When, when the Jew says, there's only one thing that matters to me, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Gentile says, there's only one thing that matters to me, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's the room for the division? We're all on the same page here. We're on the same boat here. You see how the unity begins to take place. But don't worry, because 
Paul is going to more explicitly express how this unity has happened. Obviously, it's happened through Christ, but, but what does that mean? Like we could, well, what does that mean? How, how did Christ do that? Why is being in Christ, how does that create unity? Paul's going to continue to tell us that. Look at verses 14 and 15 back in Ephesians 2 with me. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15. Or forgive me, let's do uh, 15 and 16. Or no, I'm sorry. <laughs> forgive me. 14 and 15. 14 and 15. My notes are right. Trust your notes. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So how is it that Christ has made one new man in place of Jew-Gentile? How has he made peace? Well, Paul explicitly tells us it was because he broke down the wall of hostility. So Paul speaks of there's this metaphorical wall that separates Jew and Gentile. And this metaphorical wall is hostility. In other words, they don't like each other. They hate each other. And this has basically been the case for all of human history. Basically, the whole world has always hated the Jewish nation. And a lot of people are not comfortable saying with this, but the fact remains that the Jewish nation has pretty much hated the rest of the world. There's just been this natural hostility between Jew and Gentile for almost all of world history, and it largely continues today. And this hostility, this hatred of one another, Christ has destroyed that wall. He's broken down that hostility. Now, how could he have possibly accomplished such a feat? How did he remove this wall of hostility? Well, the text tells us he abolished the wall of hostility by abolishing, verse 15, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's kind of a strange phrase. Why didn't he just say the law? Well, this long phrase is Paul is actually trying to identify a particular portion of the law. In uh, Christian theology, we have come to sort of make these artificial distinctions of the Old Testament law, as we've seen that throughout the usage of the New Testament, not every portion of the law is treated the same way. Some of the law, the, the laws deal with civil government. Some of the laws deal with just personal government. Thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal. Like, that's just how you should live your daily life. But then there's governmental stuff like case laws. What do you do when one man steals your ox? Well, here's this, you do this and this, and he repays this restitution. So we have what we call civil laws. And then we have what's called moral laws. But a really important part of the law is what we've referred to as ceremonial law. Part of the Jewish law, it didn't just regulate your personal morality, and it didn't just regulate the state, it, it regulated your religious worship. These were laws that were exclusively pertaining to how you were to worship God rightly. And not only do we see these subtle distinctions, but even Christ, as he came to fulfill these law, the law, fulfilled these in different ways. The moral law is fulfilled in a different way than the ceremonial is. And so I think we have good reason to make these sort of distinctions. Even though you're not going to find a Bible verse that says, here's the moral law, here's the ceremonial law, here's the civil law. Uh, but these are helpful distinctions that we have made. And I think Paul is trying to make a distinction here. He's not just saying the law. That's, that's how Paul normally talks about it. The law, the law, the law. But here he mentions, the forgive me, in verse 15, that the commandments expressed in ordinances, he is specifically talking about here the ceremonial law. 
the laws that regulate our worship. Christ abolished the ceremonial laws and that is what enabled the hostility to go away and enabled us to come together. Now, why was Paul singling out these laws? Why did taking down the ceremonial laws create peace? Well, because the ceremonial laws were the original thing that separated Jew and Gentile in the first place. You see, the civil government, it didn't matter. Anyone who lived in Israel had to abide by those. The the civil government laws had nothing to do with Jew-Gentile. It was for the nation, anyone in the nation, including sojourners. So that was just a universal law for all people. The moral law is just a universal law for all people, right? It's not like if, if you were a Gentile, it's, it's okay to steal and murder and lie, right? So part of God's laws for all people, part of God's laws for the state. But the ceremonial law very clearly made a hard distinguishing between Jew and Gentile. In fact, the whole purpose, well, largely the whole purpose of the ceremonial law was to separate the Jews from the Gentiles, Right? So this is why God commanded things like uh, you cannot trim the sides of your beards and you can't mix fabrics and you can't plant two different seeds in the same garden. These are not like moral offenses to God the way like murder and stealing and lying is. But God gave them these distinguishing marks that essentially said you're not them. They're the Gentiles and they do this and they, you don't. The most important distinguishing law of all of the ceremonial laws, can anyone guess what was it? We talked about it a lot. Circumcision. Circumcision is not some moral commandment. It's not like you're a wicked, horrible, heinous person if you've not been circumcised. It was merely a mark of identification. When you were circumcised, it was saying, we're not them over there. The whole point of circumcision was to separate Jew and Gentile. And it didn't end there. Even in the worship, in the temple, there was actually a section where the Gentiles worshipped, but they were not allowed into the further section where the Jews got to worship. All throughout the Old Testament, there is a distinguishing between Jew and Gentile, between the people of God and the heathens. And that ceremonial law has been fulfilled. It's gone away. By Christ's death, the new covenant has been instituted and the new covenant does not make Jew-Gentile distinctions. So by fulfilling the law, the ceremonial law, by fulfilling that law and putting it away, we now no longer have any religious need to separate or care about someone's skin color or who their parents are. Now, before we move on, we need to make a couple important clarifications. Uh, First and foremost, Paul is not, emphatically, he is not blaming the law for the hostility. Paul is not telling us that the law is the culprit for the Jew-Gentile hostility. The law was the vehicle that sinful men on both sides of the divide commandeered to create their own contempt for each other. While the Old Testament law did regulate and it made a distinction between Jew and Gentiles in religious practice, it did not command contempt. Nowhere in the law were the Jews told to hate the Gentiles, to look down upon the Gentiles, to think themselves as better than the Gentiles. That's not in the law. What happened was the law made a distinguishment and then the Jews took that and their sinful hearts created contempt created hatred. Oh, we get, we get to be closer to the Holy of Holies. We're more special. We're the chosen people. We're more special. 
They created their own contempt and they used the law as the excuse. But the law didn't create it. The law is not the bad guy. And by the way, it goes on the other side of the equation too. What happened was Gentiles looked in on God's gracious privileges to the Jews and they got jealous. And they got bitter. And they got suspicious. And so they used the distinction to hate the Jews. And the Jews used the distinction to grow in contempt for the Gentiles. But the law did not command either of them to do that. The law is not the bad guy. But it was the vehicle the bad guys used to make things really bad. And so that is why even though the law is not the bad guy, once the law was broken down, now we have nothing, our sinful hearts have nothing to cling to as we try to make these distinguishments. Well, I'm better than the Jews. Says who? Show me in your Bible where you're better than the Jews. You can't do it. Well, we're better than the Gentiles. Says who? Show me in your Bible where, oh, what about the distinguishment? No, that's been abolished. Christ fulfilled that. You see the point? The law is not the bad guy, but it was what they used. So when Christ fulfilled the law and reestablished the new covenant, or established the new covenant, it broke down any excuse sinful hearts had to hate each other. We have no excuse. It opened up a pathway for us to come together. Because the New Testament no longer makes these distinctions. That's an important clarification. The law is not the bad guy. Paul is not blaming the law. Uh, another distinction we have to make is this has been a text that oftentimes people have found to be in contradiction to a very famous quotation from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I have that. If uh, I don't know who has our clicker. If someone would turn to the next slide. So this is Matthew 5.17. And it says, Jesus is speaking, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, you kind of see our conundrum now, don't you? Because what does Ephesians 2.15 say? By abolishing the law of commandments. So what is the case here? Did Christ come to abolish the law or not? This is just a classic example of where there is difficulty and confusion in translating one language to another. Because the fact remains that in the English language, as in any language, uh, one word can have multiple definitions and multiple usages. And that's why some translations don't use the word abolish here in the ESV because they want to not make it look like Paul is contradicting Jesus. Because you might be surprised to know that even though in the English they're the same word, abolish, abolish, in the Greek they're not the same word. They're related, but they're different words. Okay? And these different words actually do have very subtle but very important uh, connotations. So the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5, if you were to do like a Greek word study on it, this are, these are the definitions that come up with Matthew 5. To destroy, to overthrow, to loosen, or to break up. Right? So Jesus is talking about some kind of like destruction, violent destruction. The different Greek word that Paul uses in Ephesians 2, if you were to do a Greek word study on that, it would say the definition is to render inoperative, to make no effect, to annul or bring to nothing. You see, those are, those are actually different definitions. And, and the subtlety there is actually quite important. The word in Matthew 5 is a kind of violent overthrow and destruction. Jesus uses the same word in the book of Matthew when he talks about the temple being destroyed and his body being destroyed. So what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is he's saying, I am not against the law. I am pro-law. I am for the law. 
I have not come down from heaven to say, hey, you know that law you've been following? That, that stuff is whack. That stuff is out of control. Don't, don't follow it anymore. Just, just, just shake yourself free from that nonsense. That's not what Jesus came to do. He was not against the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. It was Lord over him and he obeyed it. He loved God's law. He didn't come to abolish it. But he did come, as he says in Matthew 5, to fulfill it. And this word fulfill in Matthew 5 is what Paul means by abolish in Ephesians 2. To fulfill something is to render it inoperative, to make it of no effect. If my wife, if I'm reading a book and I slam it shut and I, and I put it in, on my bookshelf and my wife says, what, do you not like that book? Do you hate that book? I might respond, no, I'm just done with it. I just finished it. So Christ came and he says, no more circumcision and no more dietary laws and, and all these stuff. And people say, what, you don't like the law? You're against it? What's the response? No, I just finished it. I'm done with it. You see, the law had a purpose and Christ fulfilled that purpose. So we no longer have need of that law anymore. That's not being against it. That's not destroying it. That's not overthrowing its tyranny. It's simply finishing it. Uh, Paul makes this pretty crystal clear somewhere else. Again, you don't have to turn here. I have it on the screen for you. Read with me from Galatians chapter 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law has not been abolished in the sense that it's bad and Christ destroyed it. It's been abolished in the sense that it had a purpose and that purpose has been met. So we don't need it anymore. Remember, the, the ceremonial law in the book of Hebrews is referred to as types and shadows. The ceremonies of the Old Testament were all prophesying the coming of Christ. So therefore, when Christ came and he fulfilled all of these types, he fulfilled all of these shadows, now that Christ is here, we no longer need the shadow. We no longer need the type. It's like if a woman's husband goes off to war and she clings to his picture every day. Maybe she kisses his picture. She holds up his picture and she prays for her husband. But when he comes home, does she lie in bed at night with the picture? Does she continue to kiss the picture? No. The husband's here. I don't need the picture anymore. The, the Old Testament ceremonies were pictures of Christ. And once he came and fulfilled them, we don't need him anymore. They're not bad. They're not evil. We just don't need them. We have Christ. That is what Paul means when he says in Ephesians 2 that Christ abolished the law. He fulfilled it. It is no longer operative in our lives. And so because of this, let's bring it all back to the purpose. So what does all this mean? It means there is nothing impeding the Jews and Gentiles from coming together spiritually and religiously. The Old Testament law, which at once kept us apart, is gone. So there's nothing keeping us apart. And so that is why Christ brings Jew and Gentile together and truly creates peace. This is why in Jesus and in Jesus alone do we have peace with our fellow man. You want to have world peace? The answer is simple. We all need to come to Christ. And there's nothing stopping anyone from doing that. There's nothing in our way. Christ creates peace between men. That's point number one. I know that was a long point, but that's point number one. But point number two won't be as long, but it is very, very important. Christ doesn't just create this horizontal peace, peace with men. 
where Jew and Gentile come together and are created as one. He creates a vertical peace, a peace with God. Let's read verse 16. Part of how he creates peace between men is in verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ, by his death on the cross, reconciles us to God. That's what the text says. We are reconciled to God through the death of Christ. So here is our vertical peace. In Christ, we also have peace not just with men, but with God. Because God is holy, we, can't not, we cannot have a right relationship with him as sinners. And so Christ, by nailing our sins to the cross, has made it possible for us to be restored to the Father and to become his children. Again, we're reminded here of the only gospel, that since Christ is the Savior of Jew and Gentile, we are both reconciled the same way, by the abolishment, the fulfillment of the law, and the death of Jesus Christ. This is why in verse 17, Christ, through his church, can preach the gospel to those who are near and to those who are far away. That's just an expression in verse 17. Those who are near were the Jews and those who are far away were the Gentiles. We learned that last week. Because of Christ's death, he can now, through his church, through his apostles, preach the gospel to everyone without distinction. Again, there's not a gospel for the Jews and a gospel for the Gentiles. We are all reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And notice here, though, that Paul says that our reconciliation with God is accomplishing peace by thereby killing the hostility. Right? He reconciled us to God through the cross. And then it goes on to say in verse 16, He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So notice, we're given a second reason here for how we can have peace with men. And the foundation of that peace with men comes through peace with God and forgiveness of sins. So, in other words, here's what Paul's saying in case I've confused you. The, the point of this passage is to say that men can have peace with each other. But the foundation of that peace begins with peace with God. Peace of God, with God must come first. You cannot have true and abiding peace with fellow men until you have both first found peace with God. It is only when our sins are abolished, our sins are conquered, and we have a right relationship with God that we can then go out and have a right relationship with no hostility with men. Now, why is this so? Look at verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This verse is sort of Paul's conclusion here, and it tells us, how being reconciled to God is foundational to reconciliation with men. It gives us really two ways. First, we can have peace with men because the gospel equalizes us. This is why peace with God is required before we can have peace with men because we need to be equalized. We need to be on the same playing field before we can have peace. And that's what reconciliation with God does. Notice how Paul emphasizes in verse 18 that all people have access to God in one spirit. That's what he's emphasizing. There's not more, multiple saviors. There's not multiple gospels. And likewise, there's not multiple spirits. We are all united to the Father. We have access to the Father in one spirit. And so this is just another example of how Paul has been radically equalizing Jew and Gentile all throughout Ephesians chapter 2. He equalized us at the beginning in our sin, 
We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. He equalizes us in our common Savior. We're all saved by Jesus Christ. And he now equalizes us in our common spirit. We all only have access to God through one spirit. And so you see this equalization is part of the process of making us have peace. We, we cannot have hostility to anyone else because at the end of the day, we're all really the same. We're all sinners who need the grace of God in Christ Jesus by the power of the Spirit. That describes every single person you meet, no matter their skin color, no matter their family ancestry. Paul has equalized us. Reconciliation with God puts us all on a level playing field so that we can now have peace. There's no room for favoritism or pride in the gospel. We all have one spirit. But another way that's implied in this text is what is specifically this one spirit doing? It is giving us access to who? Notice he doesn't say to God, which is how Paul has primarily described it up to this point. We have access to the Father. The second way the gospel has to come first, reconciliation with God must come first before we can be reconciled to men, is because when we become reconciled to God, that's when we become family members. We cannot reconcile until we are family members. Family bonds have a unique way to unite people. Every other relationship you have in your life, believe it or not, was an earned relationship. Right? You handpick your friends. You pick your friends based on people you get along with, people you like, shared interests, shared uh, sense of humor. You're not best friends with everybody, and you don't want to be best friends with everybody. You pick your friends. It's an earned relationship. Right? Assuming no one in here was in an arranged marriage, you picked your spouse. And I'm willing to bet your spouse wasn't arbitrarily picked. You didn't select a name from a hat. There was a reason you wanted to marry your spouse. There was a reason you wanted to marry her or him over other people. You see, the people we have so much unity with, we earned that unity. Family is a different story, though. Isn't it kind of interesting that we as human beings just, just kind of naturally give loyalty to our family? We don't earn it. It just, why do, you, why do you help that person so much? I don't know. It's my sister. <laughs> That's why. We're family. There's this amazing natural bond that family creates. As a matter of fact, Paul leverages this in one of his epistles to Timothy. Paul tells Timothy how wicked it is when Christians don't take care of their parents. And Paul's reasoning for that is even the heathens take care of their parents. Like, you don't have to be a Christian to know, I owe these people loyalty and service. Why? I don't know. They're my parents. We just do. There is a natural bond in being family. Now, obviously, in a sinful world, this is distorted. I get it. Yeah, fathers abandon their homes. Siblings fight and never talk. But that is a defect of what God has naturally programmed. The natural program is we simply love family. And so what reconciliation with God does is it gives us a common father. And when you have the same father as another person, what does that make you? Siblings. How is it that the gospel, reconciliation with God, grounds reconciliation with men? Because the gospel makes us brothers and sisters. I know that I no longer need to look at you as a Hispanic or as a Jew or a Gentile or a white person, whatever it might be. My only question is, who's your father? Is your father the devil or is your father God? If your father is God, you're my brother. You're my sister. And we love our family. See, the only way for us to have peace with God is to have a shared father. 
to be adopted brothers and sisters in the household of God. So just briefly conclude, Paul says that in Christ, because Christ abolished the law of commandments, he is able to bring peace with men. But that only happens if we first find peace with God, wherein our sins are forgiven and we become spiritual family members. So let me just conclude with a couple really important, very relevant applications. I know we've spent a lot of time talking about two fairly simple points. Christ can bring peace between Jew and Gentile. Christ brings peace with God. But I want us to see how relevant this really is. And I promise we won't take too much time on this. But number one, I want us to remember that the gospel is the only solution for all of our racial divisions in our country today. Unfortunately, though we don't have a Jew-Gentile divide in our country, we still, know, we still, just like every other country in the world, have tribalism. We have warring factions between different cultures and people of different races. And we need to remember what is our one and only hope in all of this division. There is one answer, and it is faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can actually bring unity, peace, and reconciliation to the factions and the wars of our culture. Now, I want to qualify that because what some people hear when I say that is some people hear me saying, so Christians shouldn't be involved in the culture wars. Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. Our job is not to change the culture, it's to preach the gospel. That's what, that's what a lot of people hear me saying. And I want to say that's not what I'm saying. If there are unjust systems as the sort of social justice side of our culture war maintains, if there are unjust laws, unjust systems, we as Christians should care deeply about that. We should be very involved to establish justice in our country. But we need to have our priorities in line. We need to, or not priorities, but we need to understand why we're doing what we're doing. When we fight for justice in our culture, we're not doing so because we think peace is at the other end of it. We fight for justice for justice's sake. In other words, we need to fight for justice because justice is good. <laughs> we, we, we don't fight for justice thinking that this is the key to peace because it's not. Believe it or not, you can establish just laws and actually further a country's division. I'll just give you one example. What would be the appropriate justice for an issue like abortion? It would be an illegal, capital, criminal offense. Now imagine if every state in the union did what was just. Would we all come together and sing kumbaya on abortion? Or would it rather enrage people more? So yes, Christians need to be involved in politics. We need to be involved in the culture. We need to be fighting for justice. But we're not doing so because justice is how we unite with people. Most often, justice further divides us. It worsens the hostility. So being involved in the culture is important. Being involved in politics is important. But when your goal is actually creating peace, legislation won't do that. Activism won't do that. Billboards and signs and protests and signatures don't change men's hearts. They will still hate you, even if you get your way politically. So I'm not saying don't be involved in the culture, but what I am saying is that if we actually want true peace in this country, politics is not the answer. Culture wars are not the answer. Christ and Christ alone is the answer. 
Christ is the only one who can truly fix what is broken in this country. And then the last application of this sermon is this. I hope you hear in this text about how Christ makes peace with men and peace with God. I hope you hear and are reminded of how vital the unity of this church is. The last application we bring is how unfitting it is when we as Christians who spiritually have become one fight in war with each other. That is in itself a sort of denial of the gospel. When there is division and bitterness and strife in this church, we are essentially denying the gospel. If you don't believe me, read Galatians chapter 3. Or read the whole book of Galatians. When Peter went to the Galatian church and refused to associate with the Gentiles, Paul accused him of denying the gospel. It's not like Peter went in and said, you know what guys, I've been rethinking this whole Jesus is Lord thing. You know what guys, did, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Have we really looked at the historical evidence for this? Peter didn't deny the gospel, but the way he lived his life was an active denial of the gospel. Peter said with his mouth, we're all one, but then he lived with his life, I don't associate with those people. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. Every time there is strife and envy and, and, and bitterness in our church, we are denying the gospel. People will come in here and say, you know, that pastor preached for 50 minutes about how we have peace with man, but I don't see a lot of it in their church. You know, we can all, it's not that hard for us all to, to throw a confession of faith on the table and sign it. But that's not unity. That's not unity. Do we love each other? Do we forgive each other? Do we care about each other? Do we see how each other do? That's unity. That's peace. That's, that's oneness. Now, I'm not saying that our church has a huge flaw here, but I'm just reminding us of how important our unity is. Christ has made us one. In this church, there's no such thing as male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. We are all one in Christ.